You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Galatians chapter 4, we're actually going to back up into chapter 3, but uh, we're going to read this morning from Galatians 4. Uh, kind of got a, a kind of a big bite of the apple to take this morning. Often when I'm planning these sermon series, which was months ago, um, I go through a, a letter like this and break it into the bite-sized pieces uh, as the Holy Spirit leads. But uh, this bite this morning is a little bit of a big bite, and I'm almost wishing that I had divided it into two, but the Holy Spirit was leading me correctly then. He didn't get it wrong. I just hope that I can get it right this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. So we kind of drop right into an argument here. There's really not a good place to kind of start because Paul is, is going deeper and deeper into his argument for this church about that the salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. And so we kind of drop right in. So this is going to be a little bit choppy as we kind of jump in at chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we pause this morning and we're thankful for the beauty and intricacy of your word. It is the full and complete revelation of who you are, what you are about, how you're working in the cosmos and in our lives individually. And, and Father, sometimes we just take it for granted Sometimes, Father, we just, we just skim through things, and, and Lord, you know I'm guilty of that as well, that what's meant to help us to see you high and lifted up, oftentimes, Father, just becomes one more thing on our list of things to do. That rather than approach your word with the, with the understanding that it's going to change us every time that we read it, that every time we meditate upon it, it's, it's going to do something in our life. And, and rather than approach it that way, sometimes, Father, we just approach it as though it's just another book with black words on a white page. And, Father, it's so more than that. It is alive. It is a living, breathing word that, that not only reads us, but changes us. And Father, I'm amazed that every time I open it, the depth and the breadth of what those you inspired to write was exactly what I needed to hear, exactly at this moment in life, exactly, Father, what we're facing. And, Father, I pray that our love for your word will grow deeper. So, Father, guide us in it this morning. Again, Father, what Paul is arguing in this text, Father, I'm, I'm, the best I'm going to be able to do is just hit the high points this morning. But, Father, that's what you led me to do. And I trust you that your word will not return void. So, Father, guide us this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. It's a little uh, test question right off the bat here. 
Um, this is going to, again, confirm what you already know about me, that I'm much older than a lot of you. Uh, so I'm going to ask a question, and yes, I'm going to take the answer from someone in the crowd who raises their hand. Just let me tell you on the front end, I have no gift to give you if you get it right, other than just the applause and admiration of the people around you, okay? So the first person to raise their hand, I'm going to call on you, and I want you to answer this question. If you get this wrong after raising your hand, it's on you. There's nothing I can do, okay? So here it is. What do the characters A, S, D, F, and J, K, L, semicolon have in common? Oh, in the back, very back row back there. What is that? It's the resting place of the keyboard, and you get absolutely nothing for that. But, but thank you for jumping in right there. All right, so I was thinking about this, how to try to illustrate what Paul has been arguing, how that something in the past is providing and preparing us for something in the future. That thing that's in the future was much better than the thing in the past, but the two things fit together. Confusing, right? Paul's letter to the church at Galatia is just that. We've been kind of cycling around and around these arguments, but the arguments are getting deeper and they're getting much more profound. And so it took me back many, many, many years ago till I was a, uh, I think I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore in high school. I can't remember. But somehow, and I don't know how this happened, because I certainly wouldn't have chosen it, but somebody encouraged me, so I, well, went along with it. I ended up in a typing class in my high school. Now, for some of you, uh, you know it to be keyboarding or whatever they're calling it now, if they even have that class anymore, I don't know. But at that point, there was a big, huge classroom, and it was filled full of these ancient machines called typewriters. Now, they weren't so ancient that they were all mechanical, if you had the opportunity to see one of those. They were electronic. But nonetheless, there was no screens, there was no, yes, if you can imagine, there was a time before internet and Wi-Fi. And in those days, if you wanted to produce a document, you actually ran a piece of paper into this machine called a typewriter, and you would type, and these were electronic, and they, you would type your letter, right? So here I am in a classroom, and I, I think I must have been a guidance counselor said, hey, you need to take this class, and where I probably wanted to sign up for shop or drafting, where all my guy buddies were. Here I am in a class, and the first day I walked into it, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to be in this class, but then when I walked in there, I'm like, well, this could have some benefit because everybody in the room was girls. Uh, there is an upside. There's an upside here. Okay, there's an upside. And in this room, I'm, I, literally, it was a sea of typewriters. And you had a, one assigned. And the lady, Miss Alexander, uh, she was tough. Her life was absorbed with helping teenage kids learn how to type. And buddy, she was passionate about it. And when she would walk around the class, she had a three-foot-long yardstick. And let me give you a guess as to what that yardstick was for. If she walked by you and saw you doing this, which was primarily all I knew about typing was hunt and peck, you would get a nice little sharp rack of that yardstick right on the shoulder or on the back to get your attention, to go back to that home place, which I didn't know anything about until I got in that class. And so here I am trying to learn how to type, and we have these goals that we would have to hit, like each week she wanted to see progress, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to survive. I'm like, I don't know how in the world I'm ever going to type 50 words a minute, because if I'm going to type 50 words, 58 of them are going to be wrong. I don't know how that's possible, but trust me, you're not going to be able to read while I type. Amazingly, not only did I learn to type, but I learned to type pretty doggone well. And even to this day, when I'm sitting at my laptop, my hands are in that home position just like she taught me because I got hit so many times with that yardstick, 
I now know just automatically without even thinking about it. And I can talk pretty well. Now, you may be thinking, what has this story got to do with anything to do with the church at Galatia? Well, here's the thing. The very next year, the very next year, I come in and I'm walking down the hall and I look in that same classroom to see if Miss Alexander was there because I actually had deep appreciation for her, even though it was the hardest, one of the hardest classes I didn't like being in there. I really appreciated her. Uh, I looked in the classroom, all the typewriters are gone. And now in their place are computer screens with keyboards. And now we are no longer teaching typing class, we're teaching keyboarding, which is in essence the same thing, which is incredible. Because when I sit at my laptop, I still use the same exact tools that she taught me. And, and, and when I'm typing a paper, or when I'm typing my sermon notes, I am still using the mechanics of what I learned my freshman year in high school, even though the technology that is sitting in front of me is far better and far more advanced than that typewriter that I set in front of my, my sister had a typewriter. She wouldn't let me touch it. Hers had the correction tape. You know, you, you mess up, you hit this thing, and for those of you who I'm completely lost, if you're sub 40, sub 30, you're like, what is this guy talking about? It actually had whiteout built into the typewriter. You hit this thing, and it would erase or at least cover over your mistakes. In that classroom, we had no whiteout at all. The mistakes were the mistakes. The computer, though, oh, my goodness, folks, the computer. Microsoft Word, when I go up there and open it, and as a professor at a college and students are turning in papers, and I'm looking at these papers, and there's misspelled words in this paper, and I'm like, dude, the, the, the software is underlining the word for you. What are you doing? That's where I kind of, you know, I kind of respond on the law side of the equation rather than grace. You know, you're, you're going to get some points taken off. But that computer is so much more advanced than that typewriter. But see, that typewriter prepare, prepared me for what I'm doing now. While I would never go back to a typewriter, the typewriter had an incredible purpose in teaching me how to type to prepare me for what was coming better. And if we could, if we could personalize the typewriter, if we could, if we could turn them into to beings, the typewriter would say, you know, the computer is what I've always wanted to be, but I know I can't be that. The power of a computer where it corrects for you, it, it shows me my grammatical errors, it gives me suggestions. When I don't know of a word to use, I can go up here and click on thesaurus and it gives me suggestions all right there with no yardstick and no lady hitting me. It's awesome. But the typewriter, prepared, the typewriter prepared me for something better. Paul is going to talk about something better. He, he's, been, he's been showing us how that, that keeping the law can never make us right with God. And so he's been circling around this argument over and over again. And yes, very repetitive, I get that. But I think where Paul's been going for the last couple of chapters, he's going to arrive here at chapter 4 in the verses that I just read. Because Paul is preparing this church, and for those who are inside this church, trying to divide it, to try to add law back to grace in the gospel, Paul says, wait a minute, there is something better that God has for you. And if you try to keep the law, if you try to just be a good little boy or a good little girl and try to impress God, you're going to forfeit that which is better. In other words, it's like, well, I know there's a computer, but man, I love this typewriter so much, I'm just going to stay right here when the rest of the world has moved on. Paul is going to introduce another set of arguments. And what he's going to do is he's going to contrast what happened with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15 and 17. And he's going to contrast that with what happened with Moses on top of Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law to give to the people. Because here's what's happening. 
The people inside this church, all those many years after the Mosaic law was given, these were Jewish people who were inside the church, and they were saying to the people in that church that, yes, put your faith in Jesus, but you also must do these things if you want God to be happy with you and to accept you. You must keep the law. You, you must do what Moses said. So here's what happens. Instead of focusing on the promises of God, they focused on all the works that you're supposed to do to impress God. And by impressing him, then you're going to gain his favor, and then you can enjoy all of the promises. But you can't enjoy the promises until you keep the law. So what they were doing is they were viewing the promises of God through the lens of the Mosaic law. And as such, everything that they did was about, well, getting in good with God. You know, we're not that different. We're not that different at all. Because we still look at God's grace through the lens of the law. We still still look at what God has done and what Christ has done on our behalf. And as a follower of Jesus, we have this tendency, especially when we make a mistake, to revert back to this idea that, that I've got to do better. I've got to do more things. I've got to impress God with all my works. And it's incredible how we default back to this position of viewing God's grace through the lens of the law. That rather than resting in his promises, we revert back to trying to impress him with how good we are. All the while knowing that we're not that good at all. Paul has made quite a few arguments. And the last argument that we looked at back before Christmas was that previous parts of chapter 3, if you remember, there were six Old Testament verses that Paul pulled out to make an argument. That argument was justification is by faith alone. In other words, to be right with God is through faith, not through works. He also makes the argument that that the promises given to Abraham include the Gentiles, which just really freaked a lot of people out. It was one of those tensions in the early church that that you mean that God is doing something among those people who are non-Jewish people? So Paul makes these arguments through six verses out of the Old Testament, five out of the law and one out of the prophets. So this is going to raise an obvious question in this church among those who are trying to hear what Paul has to say and among those who are trying to split the church over this issue. And here's the question. Well, if if the law doesn't make me right with God, then what good is the law? If if the law can't bring me into a right relationship with God, then, then do we even need the law? Do we even need to pay attention to it? Do we even need to be keeping it? Now, for those who are inside the church trying to split it, they would never, ever jettison the law, never. But for the church, what is our obligation to the law of Moses? Now, when we say the law of Moses, I want to be clear, that law that was given to Moses by God on this mountain, and it included three aspects of the law. There were ceremonial laws. These laws were how they were to offer sacrifices. The book of Leviticus fits in well here. And how they were to approach God and how they were uh, to establish the priesthood. There there was the moral law. This is what we understand in the Ten Commandments. Those moral uh, absolutes that God expected of his people. And then there was these civil laws. These laws is how the Israelite nation was to live alongside one another. That if, that if you accidentally kill my ox, then you have to restore that. And that was included in the law. So when I say the law, all of that, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil law, all included together, these people were saying, you've got to keep it all. You've got to keep it perfectly if you want God on your side. Listen to what Paul says. Let's back up in chapter 3, verse 15, because we've got to go back 
to kind of lay the groundwork. We kind of started at the end and we're backing up. So back up to verse 15. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to address this question or questions that are going to arise. He's anticipating these questions. So he starts out in verse 15 and he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is going to address this issue of the covenant versus the law. And the first thing he says in general, he says, when two people come together, they sign a contract. Maybe it has to do with land, like where my boundary is versus your land. And we're going to come together and we're going to agree that this is the boundary of our land and I'm going to have my sheep over here and you're going to have your sheep over here. And two, two men, two landowners would come together. They would ratify a covenant, a covenant kind of like what we'd understand as a contract. And one of the ways that they would do that that was prescribed in their culture was they would take an animal, it could be a, a, a lamb, it could be a, a bird, it could be an oxen, and they would slaughter this animal. They would, and it, listen, I know it's gory, it's gross, but just hear me out. They would cut the animal in half. And they would lay one half over here and one half over here, and these two men would stand between those two pieces of a carcass. They would shake hands, and that would ratify the covenant. And, and in essence, what's happening is they're saying to one another, if I don't keep the aspects of this covenant, let happen to me what happened to this animal. That was their culture. So what Paul is going to argue, he begins his argument with an example, and he says, in that kind of a situation, no one can annul it or add to it once it's been ratified. In other words, once that contract has been established, you can't just show up later, a week later, a year later, 10 years later, and just change it or ignore it or set it aside. It is binding. And if that is true between two individuals, two human beings, look where he goes next. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham. So if, if that is true between two men Talking about a piece of land, how much more true is that when God makes a covenant with Abraham and ratifies it? What is the opportunity to change that? If God has said this is the agreement, who in the, in the universe is going to step forward and say, no, 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 that's not really what God said. Let me change that up for you. So Moses, given the law, notice what he says. He says the covenant that was given to Abraham says that it was given to his offspring. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to take a little, he's going to go down this little side path here for just a moment because he's going to make a point with this as he goes through this argument. He says that it was made to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. The covenant promise says that the offspring of Abraham, that these promises would be fulfilled in the offspring. Now, when you read that, you think, well, that must mean the many children that Abraham would have, right? All the descendants of Abraham. Paul says, nope, that is not what was meant in that covenant, that the offspring refers to one, not many. And that offspring is none other than Christ himself. So get this, in Genesis 12, God speaking to Abraham about the covenant, built within that covenant, is the gospel itself centered none other than in Jesus himself. That the offspring referred to in that covenant is talking about Jesus who would come many, 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 many centuries later. Verse 17. Now this is where Paul is going. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So here's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying for those of you in the church, 
the church in Galatia, for those of you who are now adding the law to the gospel, let me tell you what you're doing. You are forfeiting a promise that God made to Abraham that was centered in Christ all those many years ago. Now, for those who were Jewish, Abraham, man, he's the father of the nation. And, and here is Paul making an argument saying that what you're doing is you're taking law that was given 430 years later and you're going back and trying to overshadow, even rewrite what God clearly said to Abraham. And what God said to Abraham was a promise. It was a promise that was unconditional, which means that there was nothing that Abraham had to do. God didn't say to Abraham, hey, if, if Abraham, if, if, you'll, if you'll be good and you'll do these things, you do them well and you tithe and give to the you know, local priest and you do all that, look, if you'll do those things, then, then these promises will be yours. Paul says, come to think of it, that if it's about works rather than the promise, then the promise doesn't really mean that much. Look what he says. He says that, um, he says that to make the promise void, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Simple. It's very simple what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, if you're going to adhere yourself to the law and trying to do good works to please God, to earn his favor, then what you are doing in that same moment is forfeiting the promise that God made to you. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ, and that promise has some incredible, beautiful, well, benefits. So church, make sure you understand that when you, when you kind of try to add to God's gospel by doing good works and you don't take God at his word that says that you, being justified or made right with him by faith, that you are now righteous. When we try to add to that, what it does is it forfeits the very promises of God. Why is that? This is a really important. Why would it forfeit the promise? Well, think about it. If God makes a promise, the, the responsibility of keeping that promise is on him. Now, what happened with Abraham in that moment in Genesis 12, 15, and 70, especially in 70, God makes a promise to Abraham, and he, and he ratifies that promise, that covenant. But make sure you understand that God didn't say to Abraham, Abraham, as long as you do these things conditional, then you'll inherit the promise. That's not what God said. God said, this is my unconditional promise to you, and I will fulfill it, and it will be fulfilled in none other than the offspring, not many, but one, Jesus. But if you try to keep the law, you forfeit the promise. God is good, and he's going to keep his promises. But if you try to do it yourself, guess who the responsibility shifts to? You. So if you're going to try to earn your way into heaven, if you're going to try to earn your way into the kingdom by doing good works, then here in essence, what you do, you forfeit the promise and all the benefits that come with it because you're not relying on God, you're relying on yourself. Do you see the difference? It's like typing on an old typewriter when there's something far better. He says you forfeit the promise. He says, but God gave it to Abraham. God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Unconditional. And in fact, when God gives Abraham the covenant promise and when God ratifies the covenant, guess where Abraham is? Abraham's over here asleep in a trance. God says, I will keep this promise and this promise will be fulfilled in your offspring. But yet in this church at Galatia and today, we tend to view God's promises through the lens of the law. If you've been in church any amount of time, 
if there's ever been a point in your life where you've wrestled with, am I born again? There was a time in my life years ago I wrestled with that. And I've had many conversations through 18 years of ministry with people who are really wrestling with, am I born again or am I not? And when I have that conversation with them, and I, the first thing that's going to happen, I just had a conversation like this this week. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you to God's Word. You see, your salvation is not based upon whether the hair stands up on the back of your neck or not. Salvation is not based upon how you feel today. Salvation is not based upon some feeling. Salvation is based upon the truth of God's Word and your faith in Christ. That brought you from death into life, not a feeling, not an emotion. And no mistake you'll ever make will take you out from under that out of God's grace. But the conversation often goes like this. is When a person's wrestling, they, they all begin to point to things they've done wrong since they've put their faith in Jesus. And they, they begin to think about, well, I did this wrong and I did that wrong and God's got to be angry with me and he doesn't like me anymore. So therefore, I don't think I'm saved or maybe I was and maybe I'm not and maybe I lost it. And I, I bring them back to what Scripture says, that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth nor no created thing in Romans chapter 8. John chapter 5 says that if you put your belief and faith in him, you have crossed from death unto life. That's one of my favorite verses, John 5, 24. But we are quick to begin to view God's grace and his gift of grace to us. We are quick to begin to view that through a lens of the law as if we have to do something to earn it. I think it's resting in our Western culture. I think our American culture that says pull yourself up, do your own thing, forge your own path, work hard, and all things will work out for you. If you just do the right things, then, then, then things are going to come to you that are good. All these concepts that are not rooted in Scripture, we're part of our culture, and our culture tells us oftentimes that it's more about us than it is about him. So then we automatically think if we, if we fail God in some way, there's something I have to do. Paul, over and over again, is arguing the point that the law cannot change who you are. It can only point out who you really are. That's where he's going next. What good is the law then? And, and, and is the law greater than the promises of God? Is, is the law of God, what happened on Mount Sinai, is it greater than the promise that was made to Abraham? Notice verse 19. Paul anticipates the question. He says, why then the law? Paul says, well, it was added because of transgressions. You see that word transgressions? When we read the Bible specifically in the New Testament, we'll see words like sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is the, is the missing of the mark of God's standard. God says this. This is what I expect of you. We do something else. We miss that mark. That's sin. Rebellion against God, that is sin. But this word transgression is very specific. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. The word transgression means to consciously rebel against God, to know what God expects, and to consciously choose the opposite, to do our own thing. That's a transgression. Paul says the law was added to not only reveal the transgressions, so God provides a standard, this is what he expects, and then we choose to reject that, and when we do, that is the transgression that he's talking about here. He says that the law is given for that purpose. But notice this. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. So the first thing I need you to know about the law, the purpose of the law, why the law was given, is first of all, the law is temporary. Right there, Paul says that the, the law was given until the offspring would come. Well, who's the offspring? He's already identified him as Christ. That when Christ comes, he's born into this world. 
He, he lives a perfect life. He fulfills every aspect of the ceremonial, civil, and moral law, fulfills it perfectly because he was perfect. Now, he does that not only to show that, that this is what God expects, but he did it on our behalf. He kept the law on our behalf. He says here that when Christ came, when he was crucified, when he paid that sin debt, when he, when he died the death that I should have died, when he took upon himself the sins that I committed, when he gave to me righteousness and he took upon himself evil and sin, that moment, in that moment, Jesus Christ fulfills the promise of Abraham and that Abraham would become a blessing to all nations. In that moment, in that moment, the law ceased to have bearing upon us. Paul says right there that the law itself replaced by Christ, not that the law is bad, not that the law is not helpful. He'll get to that in just a moment. But the law itself, the law itself was like that old typewriter that gets us to something much better. That that, that, that law that was given to point out where we get it wrong, to point out how we've missed the mark, to point out that we are rebelling against God. That law that was given to the nation of Israel, well, it had a time limit on it. It was temporary. And when the offspring came, there'd be no need for that anymore. Why? Because those who put their faith in Jesus have already have fulfilled the law completely in its entirety in Christ. Notice what he says. He said, until the offspring should come, the promise had been made, and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. This goes to the second part. The law required a mediator. Now, here's what Paul does. He contrasts what happened with Abraham versus what happened with Moses. There are several verses of the New Testament, this being one of them, that, that indicate that angels had some kind of responsibility. We're not completely told in the Old Testament, but there was angels that were involved in providing the law to Moses, even though we know Moses was on the mountain with God and God was dictating to Moses. But there was some part that angels played in this, as revealed by Paul and the writer of Hebrews. So there was an intermediary, and then that law was given to, to Moses, and then Moses became the intermediary between the people in God. He was the one that stood between. And, and here's what happened with Abraham. God himself spoke directly to Abraham. There was no angels. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 17, here's the picture we get. God commands Abraham to take those animals and cut them in half. Remember how we ratify a covenant? We cut an animal in half. We lay the carcasses to one side and to the other. He is commanded to cut several animals in two with the idea, certainly, that Abraham was thinking that he and God is going to stand in the middle and they are going to ratify the covenant. But you know what happens? God comes down. Instead of Abraham standing between the animals to ratify the covenant as though he is responsible for one aspect of the covenant, Abraham is over here asleep in a trance and God passes between the carcasses. In other words, he's saying that not only is the covenant unconditional, but the covenant is completely dependent upon him. In other words, Abraham is over here asleep. God is the one who will fulfill the promises. It is not based on whether Abraham is good or bad. It doesn't, doesn't matter if Abraham rebels or not. The promises that God has made, they will come true. And that promise will be fulfilled in none other than Christ himself until the offspring should come. This intermediary, Paul is saying that that covenant promise was better in the sense that it required no person in the middle. It was all on God. And God himself was the one who spoke to Abraham. 
The law was temporary. The law required a mediator. The law cannot give life. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? What was the old typewriter contrary to the computer? No. That, that, that was providing an opportunity for us to anticipate something better. Paul says that the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Certainly not. For if the law had not been given, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteous would indeed be by the law. So if there was a law that God could have given that would have provided life, well, the creator of the universe certainly would have provided that. The fact is, is that the keeping of the law is focused more on you and your ability rather than on God, the one who makes the promise. He says, then righteous would indeed be the by law, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Not only can the law not give life, but the law cannot remove sin. It can only reveal it. In chapter, in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything. Think of the law this way. The law was placed as a boundary on the people of God to say, live within these boundaries. If you cross out of these boundaries, not only is it going to harm you, it's going to harm your testimony. It's going to undermine our relationship. So stay within these boundaries. So I'm going to imprison you within these boundaries. And while you're there, keeping the law, you're going to wish for something better. The reality is, is the law cannot remove your sin. It can reveal it. Just like the stop sign on I-95 that says 60, the big flashing one now that has the blue lights, and when you're going too fast, it, you think there's a cop behind you, which you've already gotten used to it now, so you've already went back to speeding. That's probably more confession than it is anything. But nonetheless, <laughs> You, you see that, you see the sign, right? You're, you're, you're going and, and the sign says, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but the speed limit's 60, but the blue lights don't go off until you hit 66 or 67. So guess what I do? I drive 65 while I'm in front of that sign. Confession. Here's why. That sign, no matter how many they put up, can't change my heart. What's going on in my heart at that moment? Well, I'm running late. I got to get somewhere. I'm just that important. So while I'm just that important and I'm speeding because I got a late start or I, got, I had something that I didn't follow my schedule, and so now I'm late and now I'm rushing and I'm thinking that it's worth me getting to my place on time to put everyone else's life in danger, that speed limit sign can't do a thing about that heart problem, that I'm not that important, that it's my fault that I'm running late that my appointment is not more important than this van load of kids and family that just went to Disney World and they're on their way back to Jersey and we're in these tight lanes and I'm driving foolishly, That's, that speed limit sign can't do a thing about that. Even if the police pull me over and give me a ticket, I may change for a little while, but the law, even the punishment of the law doesn't really change my heart. Paul says that, that the law, when it imprisoned us, it should make us want something better, that, that there's got to be something better. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets would come, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, and they would talk about something better that is coming. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, he would say that there's a day coming through this Messiah where the law of God will be written on your heart. And the people of Israel, the people who were rebelling against God, they couldn't even imagine such a thing that it would be a heart transformation that was needed, and the law couldn't provide that. The law can only re cannot remove the sin. It only reveals it as a constant reminder of our failure. So here we are sitting in a prison, and, and here we have God's law, and we can't keep it. 
even though we try our best and eventually we just give up because there's no way if we're, if, if we're going to have to please God by keeping these 613 laws that I'm in big trouble. So here I sit in a prison with no way out. It was meant to keep us there because there was something greater coming, a promise that would be fulfilled that God kept all the way back with Abraham, this offspring who would come. So the law is temporary. The law required a mediator. The law cannot give life. The law cannot remove sin, only reveal it. The law prepares the way for the promise. Look at this, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. What God is trying to do within the law is protect you from yourself. Even, even for people who don't even know the name of Jesus, who maybe have heard of the Ten Commandments, who who've maybe heard of, 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 maybe read them somewhere, even for the person far, far from God and far from Christ, if you live by, if you just live by some of those Ten Commandments, I guarantee you, it's going to keep you out of a whole lot of trouble, even if you don't even believe in God. They're profound. They speak to the, the broken, sin-cursed nature of, of what we live in this world. And Paul says, that that imprisonment was to make us want something better in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Speaking of those in the church, speaking of those who have been born again, he said, you are no longer under the law. You're no longer under this guardian. For in Christ Jesus, look at this, and here it is, you are all sons of God. Here is where Paul begins to unwrap this incredible gift he now begins to talk about how that the promise, the fulfillment of the promise in Christ with Abraham all those many years ago includes something incredible and glorious and beautiful. And if you try to keep the law, you're going to miss this. And that is, is that you and I, in our sinfulness and our mistakes and our failures, that being justified by God, that moment we put our faith in Christ and God's wrath turns away from us and we are made whole with God that, that there's something else that happens. And the best way to describe this is to illustrate it. Imagine I'm standing in a courtroom. You're standing in a courtroom and God, the judge, is on the throne. He's on the bench. And I am guilty as guilty can be. There's no doubt. We don't even need to call witnesses here. I'm not denying it. I'm not denying that I've rebelled against God. I'm not denying. The, 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 the evidence is clear. There's no need to call uh, witnesses. All that is left is for the judge to render his, his verdict. And that verdict in that courtroom that God owns, the verdict is eternal death. That's the verdict. And it's well-deserved. Completely and utterly well-deserved for all that I've done. But in that courtroom, Jesus enters... And he comes out and he says, this one has put his faith in me. Jesus having fulfilled the entire law. Jesus who laid down his life and paid my debt. Jesus who dies the death I should have comes into the courtroom and says, he goes free by faith. He is one of mine. He has put his faith in me and therefore he's justified. You know what the, you know what the father does? The father strikes the gavel and he says, this man is declared innocent. Even though I'm guilty. Even though I am completely and utterly guilty, because of Jesus paying my debt, because of Jesus keeping the law on my behalf, God not only declares me 
innocent when I'm guilty. He also justifies me and says that there will never be any punishment come my way for the crimes that I have obviously committed. That justification is just that, just as if I had never sinned. And I stand in the courtroom amazed. And if that's all that God had ever done for me, that is far more than I've ever deserved. But wait, there's more. Oh, there's so much more. This is where the promise comes in. The promise is included in justification. But then the, 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 the judge, he gets off the bench. He, he comes around. He comes down to where I am. Guilty, now declared righteous. A sinner, now declared whole. Uh, someone who was evil in my, heart, my, my heart's intent was rebellion, has now been set free. But wait, God comes down. He puts his arm around me. and He says, not only are you set free, but you are now my son. And I'm going to take you home. Now, I didn't deserve justification. There's no work that I did to earn that. But folks, let me tell you, I certainly didn't deserve adoption. It's not as though I was such a good little kid. God was so enamored with me because I was so good that he just had to come home, come down and take me home. That's not it at all. I was deeply rebellious and deeply evil. The contents of my heart were constantly on myself. I was filled with arrogance and pride even at 16. For God to justify me, that's one thing. But for God to adopt me, folks, that's the promises. If you continually try to keep the law to please God, you're going to miss out on the promises. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. In these verses, Paul throws uh, four words that he hasn't used yet in this letter. It's inheritance. That we have an inheritance that we don't deserve. He says, you have a promise that it's not up to you to keep. That it was made all the way back to Abraham and it was an unconditional promise. And God is going to fulfill that promise in Christ. He also talks about the covenant for the first time. He talks about it, but he doesn't mention it. Here he does. And then this last word, adoption. You see, the law cannot provide what the promise does. The law cannot provide justification. Being good, impressing God, it will never bring you to a place where your sins are forgiven and get this, even forgotten. But the promise will. Specifically, Jesus who is the promise. The, the promise provides adoption where the law can never do that. The law can just point out how far you are from God, but it can never bridge the gap. So what does it look like to be a son or a daughter of God. Listen to what he says, verse 3, chapter 4. In the same way we were also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul goes back into his own life, and he says, at one point I was enslaved, I was imprisoned. Paul himself trying to keep the law, Paul himself trying to impress God till he has that Damascus Road experience. Paul looks back and he says, the elementary principles, those things that, that I thought was going to fix my problem with God and make me right with God, those things would never be able to do it. He said, I was enslaved and I was in prison, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Paul talks about Christmas. He talks about Jesus' first coming in Bethlehem, and he says that that, that son that was given that he will write in Philippians 2. He said that son that was given, born under the law. 
born as a child who now is going to be required to keep the law, being born in the line of David and Abraham. Well, guess what? Not only did he keep, keep it, he kept it perfectly. He said that he was born under the law to redeem or to purchase back those who were born under the law who could not keep it perfectly. You see, I'm right there in that text. I am right there. He says, for those, he came to redeem those who were born under the law. I was born under the law. Jesus was born in the law, but you know the difference? Him being God in the flesh, he kept every bit of the law perfectly. Me being in the line of Adam, I can't keep it enough. I'll never be able to. But Jesus came to redeem me from that, to set me loose from the prison, to set me free from the enslavement, and that's based in the promise that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When you look at the relationship of people to God, and you go back in the Old Testament, one of the things that's noticeably missing in the Old Testament is the idea of the nation of Israel thinking of God as their father. It's less than a dozen verses in the entire Old Testament. And most of the time when that's being referenced, it's, it's either referenced from a time where the nation is now sinful and God is trying to correct his son. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 says that the nation of Israel was God's firstborn son. But when you look at the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, you, you don't find a lot of references of people referring to God as Father. And by the time we get to the New Testament and by the time we get to Jesus and his ministry, him calling God his Father, well, it confuses the disciples, but it infuriates these same religious rulers who are trying to tear the church of Galatia apart. The first time that, that Jesus refers to God as his Father is in John 5. And Jesus comes along, this guy who, who's at this pool of water, and he's trying to get into the water to be healed, and people keep getting in his way, and he can't be healed. So Jesus just heals him on the spot and then, then walks away. This guy then takes up his bed and, and walks, and the religious rulers are offended by this because what's this guy doing on the Sabbath? He's not keeping the Sabbath. So they approach him and say, how is it that you're, how is it that you're now made whole? And he says, well, this guy, he didn't even know who it was. This guy comes and heals me. And you know what? Instead of celebrating that, instead of going, wow, that is the most awesome thing we've heard today, you know what they do? They get offended that this guy had the audacity to heal a guy on the Sabbath. You see, that's what the law does. So later, Jesus comes back to the guy, and he now knows who Jesus is. His sins are forgiven. And then Jesus calls God his Father. And in John chapter 5, verse 18 or 19, I think it's 19. The religious rulers come to this conclusion. This guy's got to die. We've got to kill him. We've got to kill him. They were offended that Jesus would refer to God as his father. And in that text, they, they say he's making himself equal with God. But the fact that he would call God father? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, Matthew 6 the disciples are interested in wanting to learn how to pray because Jesus prayed like no one they'd ever heard. So they, they want Jesus to teach them how to pray. And he says, yeah, I'll teach you how to pray. Pray this way. Our 
Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The disciples didn't know what to do with that. Because they were told explicitly, you don't refer to God as Father. That's like lowering him down. But, but, but what Paul is saying here in, in, the, in the church that is being torn apart, the church that is forgetting the promise that God made and now they're relying on the law, and now they're forfeiting the promises, and Paul's putting before them, look, the choices you're making, this is going to harm you and harm your fellowship. He says to them, look, the promise you're missing out on, the promise you don't understand, is that now we can call God Abba. That word, the way you see it in your English translation, is exactly the Aramaic word. No translation in the English except exactly the way you pronounce it. It's only used three times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it's used in conjunction with Father. It is the idea that once we are justified, once we are adopted by God, we have the privilege of calling God Abba. You may have heard it said, you might have even read it somewhere, that all people, all people live in are all God's children. I hate to tell you that that is not correct. In the sense that we are all created by God, we owe our existence to God, yes, but not every human being on this planet has the privilege to be able to call Father Abba, I do. And I didn't earn that. I didn't work that out. It wasn't because I was so good. It's because God in his grace justified me and adopted me, and now I can call him Father. What does that mean? What does it mean to be adopted by God? I'm going to give you a few things as we close. First of all, to be adopted by God, to be right with him, to be justified, reconciled, and adopted, which all comes at that one moment when we express faith, it means he will meet our needs because he's a loving father. God will meet your needs. He has done it for me thousands and thousands of times. He's met needs in my life that I never even got to ask for. He's given me things that I needed that I didn't even know I needed. God is such a good father, and he is such a present father. He knows what I need before I even ask, and so many times out of his good grace, he's given me those things before I've even asked it. And then even when I ask He's given them. That's not always exactly what I thought, right? God in his sovereign, he's never going to give me something that's bad for me. So therefore, my idea of good and his idea of good may be different, but that's okay. Because God is a good father and he will meet your needs. I, I don't know what kind of earthly father you have or had in your past. I just know that by hearing some of your stories that we've done live together that Maybe your father or your mother or both together or not. Somebody you look to as role models. And maybe there's still pain in your heart and in your life from things that you desperately needed as a kid that was just laughed off or ignored. The father that I'm talking about who adopts you through his grace, that father will never be an absentee father in your life. And he will always provide that which you need Number two, he will never abandon us even when we fail. Maybe the home you grew up in, love was conditional. Meaning that as long as you did what the parents wanted, you were loved and you were accepted. But if you messed up, if you, well, if you missed the mark, if you break a commandment or a rule in the house, then love was pulled back as part of your punishment. Do we not sometimes take that exact mindset and apply that to God? 
We all fail. We all miss the mark. We all make mistakes. But in that moment, we begin to think exactly the way we thought maybe in the home we were raised in, that, that God is now angry with me and he's pulled his love back as part of punishment. That is not who God is. And by the way, it is unfair to place on him human characteristics that he's not even capable of. The God in adopting you, he will never abandon you. He will never leave you. Your feelings sometimes, you may feel like he's abandoning you, but trust me when I tell you, on the authority of God's word, your father has never abandoned you. Number three, he will guide you, equip you, and empower you to accomplish his purposes. And he did that at the very moment you were born again. He gave you the power of his presence called the Holy Spirit who now lives in you. The gift of the Holy Spirit in you is to equip you, to empower you, to convict you, to hold you accountable. He's provided all that you need. Number four, your father will always respond to your cries for help. Whether it be a mistake that you've made or you're the victim of something else going on in your world, God always, as an adoptive father who is never absent, your father hears every cry and every need that you have. Even though it seems, again, our feelings feel like, oh, he's nowhere around. In fact, he is very present, very near to those who are brokenhearted. He will always respond. Number five, <clears throat> this one's not so pleasant, but it's true nonetheless. He will correct us when we stray. Any good father is going to correct his kids. Any good mother is going to correct their kids. Here's what I want for you, and I'm, I'm giving you this. I'm wanting you to do this because this is what is best for you. When you stray out of that, you should expect a good father, a good parent to step in in that moment and say, whoa, 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 we got to correct that. You and God are not best friends forever. He is your friend, and he loves you, but he loves you enough to tell you the truth. And sometimes that truth comes in the form of correction, and if, you don't, if you've never experienced the correcting hand of God, that should very much concern you. The Bible says in the whole book of 1 John is talking about how that, that we as his children are going to want to follow his commandments, not to earn his love, but as an act of worship back to him. So therefore, when we stray, we can expect the Father to bring correction through the Holy Spirit. If that is not happening in your life, if you can live any way you want to, it may be that God's not your father because he always corrects. Number six, he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in danger. You're having to face hardship in your life. He's your refuge. You're getting weak and, and trying to face what you have in the face. He is your strength. He, he is there when danger comes and he will protect you. Number seven, he knows how to give good gifts to his children. God is a gracious God, a generous God, a giving God, and he gives incredible gifts to his kid. But let's be honest, at that moment we were justified if God never gave us anything else. That's more than we've ever deserved. By being adopted by him, forgiven by him, and made whole. And then finally, he has prepared a place for us, and we will join him there. If God is your father... Not only is he with you now, but you will be with him for eternity because the Father is preparing a place for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, and we will be in that place. Those of you who've had loved ones pass on, who were in Christ, they are in that place now. 
fully restored. So as Paul has done so many times before, he places two options in front of us. And whatever you choose has serious circumstances connected to it. You can live your life by trying to please God through the law, which then forfeits the very promises that God has made, or you can trust Christ, the offspring, place your faith in him, and receive it all. And be a recipient of the promises of God, by which then the law becomes an act of worship back to God, not as something to earn God's favor. Which shall you choose? Which have you chosen? I believe you know. And if you've chosen wrong, the beautiful thing about God's grace is he's calling you to rectify that this morning. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, Hyde Park.